because there were some technical glitches this morning um, and a rewriting of the sermon, uh, the scriptures aren't going to come up on the screen. So hopefully you've got a Bible with you. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles on the tables right behind and in front of these sections. Grab one. If you don't have a Bible at all, grab one. They're free. Keep it. It's our gift for you. Uh, Bring it back with you every time you come and use it and read it. Uh, But go ahead and grab a Bible because you're going to need one. Um, And this morning we are actually going to continue in our series uh, called The Real God for the Real World, uh, where we're studying the historic Nicene Creed. Um, And I want you to remember something that we've reminded you every single week. And I know Ray did a great job last week of reminding you is that these historical creeds were were actually written to succinctly and faithfully summarize the essential testimony of scriptures. The authors of the historic creeds, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, they were doing the best that they could to succinctly capture the essentials of the faith, the essentials of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And, And they would use these creeds as a way to refute error that was rising up in the culture and rising up in the church. And they would use these creeds as a way to disciple and to cultivate the soul of the followers of Christ. But as we've tried to say, and we want to continue to say every single time we do this, the creeds do not carry the same weight as the scriptures. They are not a replacement for the scriptures. They are simply an attempt to summarize the essence of the scriptural confession of the nature and character and work of God. So as we unpack a new portion of the creed this morning, it's important to make sure that that we see its biblical origin, that we see its biblical roots, that we try to tie the confessions of the creed to the confessions of scripture. And so this week we're still working on that second main portion of the Nicene Creed, which deals with the person and work of of Jesus. And this morning, what I will do is I will read what we have said so far. Uh, We won't read it together this morning for time's sake, but I will read what we've said so far and get us to a new place. And we'll look at some of the... Some of the implications, or really let's start by looking at some of the truths of the creed. We'll try to make foundational statements and foundational truths that the creed declares, and then we'll look at some implications of these truths and how these truths should ignite a a passion and a joy in our life today. So this is what we've seen so far. The creed says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. So Jesus is fully God, eternally God, fully God, and fully man. This is what we've talked about in the last few weeks. And Creed will go on to say this. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. This is where we stopped last week. The Apostle Paul would kind of summarize this in Philippians chapter 2 and say this, and we've looked at this as we've gone through the creed. Talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So he is God. He is essentially and eternally God. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for most of us, if we're honest about our our grasp of the faith that we profess, and if we're honest about the faith that we often try and, and stumble through communicating to ourselves and to others, this is where the story normally ends. Jesus' birth, Jesus' life, Jesus' death in our place. This is the essence of the gospel that we tend to communicate, but that's not the end of the story. It doesn't actually stop there, though for many of us, when we think about the gospel or we think about the truths that we hold dear about who Jesus is and what he's done, this is where it essentially stops. But 
That's not true. The story actually goes on. It'll go on like this. We'll start with the scriptures first. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is, 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 is capturing a time after Jesus had given his life up in our place and died on the cross and had been buried in a tomb. And Luke chapter 24 says this. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This is the tomb where Jesus had been buried. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now while they were perplexed about what this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you. Now he's going to remind them of something that Jesus had said about himself to them while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter, he rose and he ran to the tomb, Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And this is how the creed will summarize that and make the next statement. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And here is the truth that we must grab hold of that the creed is trying to clarify for us, and they can't really do it any more clear than the creed and the scriptures itself. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, not was alive then, is alive now. God became a man. He lived without sin. He died in our place for our sins on a cross, was buried. Three days later, rose from the dead according to the scriptures. This is what the creed is trying to grab a hold of. And we absolutely believe this at Redemption Hill Church. We absolutely believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is not just, was not just alive then, but is alive now. And I will say this, this is not something that you can remain neutral on. This is not an open-handed issue when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith. This is something you must decide for yourself as to whether or not you believe it. Did Jesus Christ really rise bodily from the dead, and is he alive bodily right now? The resurrection of Jesus is a distinguishing feature of what it means to be a Christian. Orthodox Christians, Protestant Christians, for all of history, have agreed on this point. This is a dividing line between Christianity and other philosophies and other ideologies and other religions. Jesus Christ conquered death and is alive right now. The man, Jesus Christ, is alive right now. He hears our prayers because he is alive. He rescues our souls because he is alive. He knows you because he's alive. He's preparing a place for you right now because he is alive, and he's coming again one day to judge and to rescue because he is alive. He is alive never to die again. 
This is what this first statement in the creed is trying to grab. And for some of us who who kind of carry the story on, that we get Jesus coming to live in our place and dying for our sins, and where for most of us the story stops there, for some of us it goes on that God vindicated his sacrifice and raised Jesus from the dead, but for those of us who go that far, that's where the story normally stops. We get life, death, resurrection, and the story stops, but that's not the end of the story. The creed is going to go on, and this is where we're going to sit this morning, is on the next statement of the creed. And of all things that the creed chose to capture in the person and work of Jesus, all the historic creeds of Christendom captured this point. And it might be the most neglected aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus in the church today. The creed is going to go on to say this. After he rose again in accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Luke, chapter 24, where we read of Jesus' resurrection, he'll go on to end that chapter and, and to end his gospel story with this, that Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany after he had risen from the dead and he had spent days with them, teaching them about who he was, showing them that all that had been said about in the scriptures was pointing to him, helping them to see the reality of who he was, that after he had done that, he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands And he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. Mark, in his gospel record, in Mark chapter 16, he'll record it this way in verse 19. He said, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, talking about his disciples, talking about this very moment here, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. As I was thinking about this this week, and thinking about this this morning, I had to ask myself, not only in, 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 the, in the culture of Redemption Hill Church and in the culture of the larger evangelical church, but in the reality of my own life, is there a more neglected and least considered aspect of the life of Christ in his ascension? And closely connected with his ascension, his current reign. I mean, we have Christmas to celebrate his birth, Right? We've got Easter and the Holy Week to remember and to celebrate his death in our place and his resurrection from the dead. But how many of you on Thursday, June 2nd of 2011, took any time at all to read, to pray, or to even be consciously thankful of Jesus' ascension into heaven and reaches to the right hand of God? That's Ascension Day for the church. It's actually on the calendar. But how many of us ever give any real thought or consideration to the reality that Jesus didn't just rise bodily from the dead, but that he, the man Jesus, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. As we read a couple weeks ago, the writer of Hebrews said, passed through the heavens where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. If you were to ask people, if I were to ask you, where is Jesus now? Right now, where is Jesus? We would get a variety of answers. If you were to go to someone for help, for information, for an answer for this question, where is Jesus right now? It would make a world of difference who and where you went to for your answer. If you ask those guys who were always knocking on your doors and they get off their bikes wanting to tell you about God, if you were to ask the Mormon church, where is Jesus right now? they would say that he was just a man who became God. And now, he's inherited his own planet with his wife, 
or he's eternally populating that planet, or his wife is eternally pregnant. I mean, ladies want that. Eternally pregnant, populating his own planet. He was a man who became a god. He wasn't God himself. If you were to go to popular culture or a popular film for your understanding or your answer to where is Jesus right now? Okay, he rose from the dead, but where is he now? It would make a big difference where you went. If you were a big fan of something like the Da Vinci Code, you would think that Jesus ran off to France with his wife, where he had some kids, and then died like an average regular man, and he's buried somewhere over in France. And that's how it goes, right? That's how the story went. You didn't see it, did you? Don't be so holy. <laughs> some, some of you know you saw it. Somebody saw it. Right. Well, okay, so don't go there. So, so think that the, the scriptures have a, their roots and their history in, in Judaism. Go to a practicing Jew. Ask him, where is Jesus now? What's he going to tell you? Oh, that's an easy answer. He's in the ground somewhere over in the Middle East. From dust he came to dust he returned. He's buried somewhere in the dirt over there. But if you were to go to the scriptures for your answer, the scriptures would testify that Jesus, the man, was bodily raised from the dead. He spent time with his disciples, and then he ascended bodily through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He himself, in John's gospel, John recorded Jesus' own words, and he said that I came from the Father, I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and where am I going? I'm going back to the Father. This is Jesus' own words about his plan and his purpose and where he is now. So if you would ask, where is Jesus? The way to answer that question is he's at the right hand of the Father. And if you then say, where is the right hand of the Father? The right answer is it's where Jesus is. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where's the right hand of the Father? It's where Jesus is. I can't point a locality to you. I can't, like, you know, on the new phones, you know, find my iPhone and it zaps in on a map exactly where your phone or your computer is. I can't tell you locally where Jesus is. But the scriptures say he's at the right hand of the Father. And the right hand of the Father is where Jesus is. The man Jesus Christ is now seated on the throne at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. So implication number one, so what? Great, he rose from the dead. Great, he ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So what? One thing that the ascension of Christ, not just the resurrection of Christ, but the ascension of Christ confirms is that God's saving work through his son Jesus is complete. God's not only raising Jesus from the dead, but his ascension through the heavens and his seated at the right hand of God the Father is God's way of confirming by saying that Jesus did everything I had purposed for him to do. Everything that I had purposed and planned for him to do in your place he has done and I have accepted his work on your behalf and now I'm exalting him to his rightful place. This is what the ascension is saying. That God has exalted him and has given him a place of preeminence in his presence. And that is confirming the work that he had purposed for Christ to do in our place for our sins. This is what Paul went on to say in Philippians 2. Because of his humility, because of his service and obedience to the Father, God has highly exalted him 
And he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Ray did such a great job reminding us last week, every single one of us, every single one of us, whether we feel it or not, is guilty of sin and rebellion before God. Whether we feel it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we know it or not, every single one of us is judged as guilty before God. And our sin before God demands a sacrifice. God demanded a sacrifice for sin. God did what we could not do. And he made the final and full sacrifice for us in his son. And in Jesus living the life that we were created to live and dying the death that we should have died for our sin, God accepted that sacrifice and he raised Jesus from the dead. And he did not just raise him from the dead. He raised him and seated him at his right hand of authority and power, confirming that he had done all that he had purposed him to do, confirming that he had done all that was necessary. The ascension reminds us, essentially, first, that God's saving and redeeming work through Jesus is complete. It's like saying that because Jesus did what he had did, he fulfilled all that God had called him to fulfill, and therefore he deserves the place of prominence and preeminence. So Jesus is alive today in a glorified, resurrected body, and he's been exalted and seated at the right hand of God the Father. What does that actually mean? This is where it actually gets fun. And I wish we had infinite amount of time to talk about this and to think about this. But when the Bible says that Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God the Father, this is actually a biblical word picture. I mean, how many of you like word pictures? I like word pictures. I like to see things. If you're ever around me in the office and I'm trying to explain something, I'm always drawing on something. I I have to see things in pictures. And talking about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father is a biblical word picture. I mean, who sat on thrones in the ancient days? And in some nations, who still sits on thrones? Kings. Kings sit on thrones. When kings were crowned and enthroned, they were given this great seat on which they sat. And I wish, I wish the computer worked because the, the, the building that God was so kind enough to allow us to purchase had some thrones on the stage. I don't know if you've ever seen church thrones. It, it had some thrones on the stage. And I took a couple of pictures of them just so you can see. That's not what he's sitting in. It doesn't look like that. It's a very imperfect picture. But this is a word picture to connotate to us power. Thrones represent rule. Thrones represent dominion. Thrones represent power. And Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of God in the position of preeminence and honor and rule. It's the Bible's way of trying to communicate to you with a picture that Jesus is in charge. The man Jesus Christ raised from the dead, passed through the heavens, is seated on the throne at the right hand of God, and he is in charge. He is on the throne. He is ruling right now by his word and by his spirit. And you see, because Jesus is on the throne, having passed through the heavens of the right hand of God, his control and his dominion and his power is over all of creation, over all things, over all peoples, over all nations. 
His rule is over all things. And because God raised him from the dead and he ascended through the heavens and sits at the right hand of God right now, it means his rule is going on right now. It's a very present and powerful rule. It's a dominion that exists over all things right now. The Bible gives us two little phrases to help us capture this. It helps us to see and to grab a hold of and hopefully begin to feel that Jesus' rule is extensive and present and eternal. And it says that all things, all things, how many things are encapsulated in all things? All things are in his hands. John chapter 3 verse 35 says this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So what things are in Jesus' hands? All things. Everything. Nations and kings and kingdoms and philosophies and religions and times and places and tragedies. All things are in the hands of Jesus. All things being in the hands of Jesus. Jesus seated on the throne of the right hand of God the Father is another way of saying that Jesus is Lord. He rules and he reigns. All things are in his hands. And the Bible says that all things are under his feet. All things are in his hands and all things are under his feet. The Apostle Paul says this in one of the most beautiful prayers in the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I'll just take my time and read the whole thing to you this morning. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Just listen to Paul's prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and what? He put all things under his feet. And then in an astounding act of grace towards his people, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is over everything. Jesus rules and reigns over all things. This is what he said to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. Matthew's record of Jesus' ascension before he goes and ascends to the right hand of God the Father, he looks at his followers, and what does he say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what the Bible is trying to get us to grasp when it talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father. And if it's true, I mean, if, if it's true, then Today, right now, at 9.56 a.m., Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. Right now, not in some present day and time to come. Right now, Jesus is king of the universe. He has authority over politics and government, of armies and military, of industry, of business, of science and education, of research and discovery, of universities and colleges, of entertainment and media, of sports, of natural phenomena, of weather, of planets, of moons, of stars, of light and energy and motion and time. I couldn't think of anything else. 
But most importantly, if it's true, then he has authority over you. He has authority over you. He has authority over your life, your breath, your time, your health, your success, and your failure. He is Lord, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what the Bible is trying to get you to see and what might be difficult for us sometimes in our present world and the things that we wrestle with and and the arrogance and the pride that we deal with, this is a big Jesus. I don't know another way to say it. This is a big Jesus. And in a country like ours where we don't really see people enthroned, where even if we were to watch the, the coronation of the next king of England that will come probably within our lifetime, it really won't mean a whole lot to us. We don't come from a culture and a nation where this means a lot, but especially to the first century, to these people. What this was trying to show is the, the immensity of his power and of his glory. This is a big Jesus. And what the Bible is trying to communicate is that you have got to have a picture of this big Jesus in your mind and in your heart. And what we're so guilty of is having a very deficient and very minimalized picture of Jesus. A very diminished picture of the person of Jesus. And where we feel it most personally and where that pressure point comes to bear most personally in our life is when some of us wrestle. And I don't know, have you ever wrestled with having a, a, a passionless or a, an empty worship of Jesus in your day in and day out life? Have you ever felt passionless and listless and empty in your life of prayer before Jesus? I would say you need to check your image of Jesus, the portrait of Jesus that's in your mind. If I were to say close your eyes and we were to do word association, and I would say picture in your mind Jesus, what would the, what would the portrait, what would the image be that came into your mind as you read his word? If you were to see Jesus today, you would see him on a throne, high and exalted, And in all the fullness of his power, ruling and reigning over everyone and everything from the right hand of God the Father. And you would naturally become undone. You would become undone. And you would be compelled by his holiness to profess and confess and repent of your sinfulness. And you would naturally worship him in his presence. Because that is what you were created to do. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple... He got a gift. I'm not sure at the time he felt like it was much of a gift. But the heavens were opened up to him. and He was able to peer into the heavens. And the book of Revelation is a series of images and, and visions and prophetic, apocalyptic literature that he was able to see. Listen to his description. Human words. They can't do justice to it. Listen to his description, though, in Revelation 19. So then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a heavenly picture of the exalted Jesus. The Gospels present to us the incarnational nature of Jesus. The incarnational nature of the person Jesus. But there is an exalted nature of the man Jesus. The one who sits and rules and reigns on the throne of the right hand of God right now. And we need to have a big picture of Jesus in our minds that comes from the scriptures. Because meditating on the ascension of Jesus and the present reign of Jesus and a portrait of the exalted Jesus is the kindling of the scriptures for joy and passion in our hearts. It's meant to produce passion and confidence and assurance and joy in God's people. It's just a little bit of time left. Let me just try to show you a couple of reasons why this is meant to produce this and a couple of ways that this is meant to produce this in our hearts. Could you, could you use joy and assurance and passion? If not, we can just stop. Nobody's seen it. Okay, well, all right, we'll go for it then. One implication of this this meditation and time spent considering the exalted and reigning Jesus, we begin to see that he rules and he reigns over every, la- over every last one of our enemies. So I thought about what it would mean to meditate on the exalted nature of Jesus. I began to see that there wasn't a fear. There's not an enemy. There's nothing. There's nothing that exists beyond his power. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter, chapter 3, he said this, he said, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, all subject to him. The man, Jesus Christ, who is life, death, resurrection, and his exaltation to the right hand of God has now conquered and now reigns over Satan, demons, and even death itself. Every last one of the enemies of God's people, Jesus Christ rules and reigns over. He is right now, at present, at the right hand of God, the king of the universe. And there is nothing that Satan can do about it. There is nothing that Satan can do about it. All that he can try to do, and you've got to get this, all that he can do is to try to diminish the picture and the understanding of Jesus in your heart and in your mind. All he can try to do is to cast a shadow or or cast a veil over your understanding of the glory of the exaltation of Jesus and try to get you to focus your hope and your assurance and your confidence and your efforts of joy at the things perishing in this world. All he can do is to get your eyes off the nature and character and person of Jesus. That's all he can do. And Paul would say to the church, and he'd say to you, that with this being the case, you need to resist You need to resist the enemy's attempts at veiling the exalted nature of God's glory in Jesus. You need to draw near to God. And in that, he draws near to you. And he alone can enlighten the eyes of your heart to see his beauty in the face of his son exalted and reigning. He alone can open up the eyes of your hearts and give you a taste of the sufficiency and the power and the glory of the reigning 
Jesus. He can make Jesus wisdom, and he can make Jesus righteousness to you. Jesus reigns exalted over every last one of our enemies. And right now, on the throne, right now, Jesus Christ on the throne at the right hand of God the Father is interceding for you. I don't know if you can take the picture of the exalted Jesus, his glory, his power. Take your cues from John's revelation in chapter 19. Picture that Jesus and picture that might and picture that power and picture that authority sitting at the right hand of God interceding for you. A passionless prayer a sense that prayer doesn't avail much, you might have the wrong picture of Jesus. Jesus, the exalted Jesus, is interceding for you. Paul said this in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If God is the one who justifies, who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who's at the right hand of God, who now indeed intercedes for all of us. I don't know if you know this, but one of Jesus' most primary activities right now, the right hand of God the Father, is intercession. And we really, really misunderstand this. Oftentimes when we hear this, for those who are familiar with it, we think that Jesus is kind of down on his knees at the right hand of God, pleading begging God the Father in our place, but that's not the case. Jesus, the exalted Jesus, is at the right hand of God with all authority and all power. He's ruling the world by his word. He speaks, and it is so. And just as God brought the world into existence through Christ by speaking it into being, so the heavenly, ascended, exalted, reigning Jesus simply speaks his will, and it is. And he is interceding for you. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But listen, if anyone does sin, it's a nice way of saying it, right? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. The exalted Jesus the ruling, reigning Jesus on the throne is your advocate. Whenever Satan attempts to accuse you in your conscience or dares to lay a charge against you before God the Father, Jesus stands ready to defend you. Jesus stands ready as your advocate to plead his own blood and his own sacrifice in your place for your sin. He is your advocate for those whose lives are hidden hidden in him. He is your advocate before God the Father. He has suffered your punishment in your place for your sin. And he is your advocate before God whenever the enemy would try to lay charge against you. You need to think about that. I mean, think about what that would mean for your conscience. Think about that for what that would mean in your battle with condemnation. The exalted Jesus intercedes for you. And last, we have just a, a couple of minutes. Let me just give you one more implication of the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus and why just thinking on it, meditating on it, grabbing it, beginning to treasure it is worthy of your attention. Treasuring the exalted Christ 
produces hope and it compels holiness in your life now. And just listen to what Paul said in Colossians 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, our, our enemy wants us to invest all of our hope in what's perishing here. He wants us to invest all of our confidence and all of our hope in this world. And if we do, we will be sorely disappointed. We will live bitterly disappointed and frustrated because this world is not our home. This world is perishing. But as we begin to set our minds and our hearts on the exalted Jesus, we can live and die in hope and know that one day we will be resurrected to a new life. We will be resurrected to a new life. Our lives are hidden with Christ. Christ's body is in heaven. Christ exalted and ruling and reigning at the right hand of God is a guarantee that our body will be with him there one day. Our hope is, our hope is not an eternity of disembodied spirit, of just molecular spirit floating around in the ether somewhere. Our hope is a resurrected, real, material, human body in the presence of God forever. And Christ's body is the first one there, the guarantee that those who die in faith in him will be resurrected to be in the presence of God forever. People, you and I, resurrected in glorified bodies, no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no death. Just Jesus ruling and Jesus reigning over a new creation with no curse, no presence and no effect of sin. This is what Paul's saying. And as we set our minds on this, that we are hidden with Christ in God, that he is our life. Verse five, he says, therefore put to death what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is the ground or the indicative behind all these imperatives that Paul is giving his church? Why put to death what is unholy in you and put on holiness? What is the indicative behind all the imperatives? You are hidden with Christ in God. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is where you are if you are a follower of Christ. You want to put to death the deeds of the flesh? You want to grow in maturity and holiness and likeness of Christ? Then set your mind on things above. Set your mind on Christ who's seated at the right hand of God the Father. 
Set your mind on the hope that you have now and in the future. Set your mind on Jesus ruling and reigning, having authority over all things. Set your mind on him. Time spent considering the exaltation of Christ is the fire that produces in us hope and holiness. As we come to the end here, I've got to wrap this up. So, I... I honestly don't know where all of you are with this. You, you may or you may not believe the testimony of Scripture about where Jesus is right now, but I, I hope that you at least see that if it's true, if it's true, if the man Jesus Christ bodily rose from the grave and is presently seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord and King of the universe with all power and authority over heaven and earth, things above the earth, things under the earth. If you can at least see that that may be true, then can you concede that believing and following Jesus is the most important, most urgent, and most crucial thing in your life? And I don't know where you are with that this morning. I'm not sure where most of you sit. And so my prayer for you is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus that we read earlier. This is my prayer that I prayed this morning that changed everything about what I thought about I was going to say. My prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, the hope to which he's called you, the present reality of Christ, exalted Jesus, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches and the treasures of trusting and believing in Jesus? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? And where do you see it? When he raised Jesus from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come the one to whom God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. My prayer this morning for you is that you would acknowledge that Jesus is alive, that he's alive now, that he's presently ruling and reigning now, and that God would do what God can do by his spirit, and he would compel you to repent from all of your efforts of trying to be your own God, from all the ways that you have tried to suck all of your confidence and your assurance and your joy out of this world that is perishing and fading away and that you would place your trust in Jesus and receive the forgiveness that only he can give. And if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, I just want you to ask yourself, just ask yourself, where in your daily life, where in your life and in your understanding of your faith have you possibly forgotten about the exalted Jesus? Where did Jesus just die on the cross and get buried in a tomb for you? Where have you forgotten that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead and ascended through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God? Where in your life do you think that he does not rule and does not reign as God? Where do you think in your life that your world and your time is under your jurisdiction? And that the Lord Jesus, the exalted Jesus, has no right to any of your time and any of your existence. For those of you who may be convicted that you're a person who, quite frankly, has forgotten about the exalted Jesus because he has ascended and you just forgot and thought he was gone. 
I would want you to respond in repentance. I would want you to repent that wherever you need to repent for however you have forgotten him, that you would do so. And if that's not you, if you are living consistently day in and day out with a portrait of the exalted and resurrected Jesus, I want you to thank him that like John, that you've got a right perspective of who he is. Thank him for his grace that he's poured out on you. And now I'm going to pray for all of us. Father God, I, I thank you for everyone here. And I pray that everyone here would put their trust in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of your son, Jesus. Jesus, I absolutely <laughs> underestimate and don't praise you nearly enough for the fact that you're alive. We gather this morning in, in hope, with hope in our hearts and with songs in our mouths because we know that you have defeated Satan and sin and death and hell and the grave and that you are our triumphant king. This is why we can gather. We know that even though we die, one day we will rise to be with you, to be like you forever. And I pray, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would see you in eternity as our friend, not as our foe that we would face you for blessing and not judgment, that it would be for salvation and not condemnation. And I pray that everyone here would turn from their sin and trust in you. We ask these things for your namesake. Amen.